Ziploc deck. Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap. I remember nights. I didn't remember nights. I damn near went crazy. I had to get it right. Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper. The absolute truth. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Trap Drop Podcast. This is Owners Episode 4, 4.0. God, this is, we're like, what, 12, 13, 14 owners in, I think? Joined uh, joined by my esteemed associates, KVV. How are we? Doing good, CC. We're humming. We are moving right through the billionaires right and left. Uh, we're going to have a little change of pace on that front uh, soon, but but I know you got some some tasty billionaire shenanigans uh, coming up for us as well. And Neil. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. First off, shout out to Mr. Jeezy. And they say the key to life is consistency. Here, here we are. Episode four. We're we're doing it, man. I love it. I was sad to see that Mr. Mr. Jeezy got divorced uh, recently. (laughs) He did. uh, Yeah. But you know, it sounds like it was amicable though. Sometimes as, as someone who's been through that, sometimes it can be better for everyone. Everyone's happier. Yeah. Yeah. Neil, um, I feel like your guy Woody Johnson's having a moment up there in New York. He he might be. I mean, three and three. I, I said the Jets are overachieving. We got you know Rogers is just he's staying relevant. He's he's throwing, he's he's getting some toss in on the sidelines. I mean, people are are whispering that they think he's going to come back for the playoffs. I think that's outrageous. Like we said earlier, I think when we did the Woody Johnson one, it's like a, it's going to be glorious either way. Like if they were really good and Rodgers didn't tear his ACL, it would have been a lot of fun to watch. And it's always fun to watch him flail around and, and try to figure it out, like doing it live. So that's what we're getting. I think I said this on the uh, the, the uh, Trap Jaw uh, NFL stuff, Neil, that Rodgers trying to come back uh, when Zach Wilson has just played well enough to like help them survive is the most Aaron Rodgers thing possible. Like I, the final two weeks where there's – like a big debate, Rogers going on the McAfee show every day. Well, you know, I'm I'm there if they need me. Like that's yes. extremely Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> I saw uh, I, I saw the coach said something about how Rogers' uh, presence is is his greatest ability, and it's like it's also his greatest <laughs> uh, liability, I think, as well. So, and I I can't really figure it out if I like Salah. I like him. I, I feel like he is a leader of men, but uh, he might have some game management issues, some some questionable stuff. But th- for them to to beat the Eagles down both their corners, I mean, that was more. I I would say probably more of an Eagles loss than a Jets win. But listen, it will you take them any way you can get them. Listen, Neil, I think the the uh, game management stuff. We've been through this with Shanny. We've been through this with Andy Reid. A lot of the greats have game game management issues. I think some of it is is you got to take the Got to take the bad with the good, right? Sure. So, uh, you know, some of these guys probably just need to hire an assistant that parachutes in as soon as there's like four minutes left. A couple, you know? uh, not so much mea culpas, but a few follow-ups in, in this that this conversation reminded me of it. Uh, I had a Jets fan that listened, said that I was nowhere near hard enough on Christopher, Woody's brother. Said the guy's a complete clown. And while Woody was the ambassador uh, to the UK, uh, Christopher ran the franchise into the ground. Um, so just want that stated for the record. People can do with that what they will. And then on the, uh, I guess on the Falcons TC, you get anything on, on our Arthur blank breakdown? Not really. I mean, I think, you know, people said it was more of a, a chronology of our, 
our fandom of the Falcons and our time growing up versus maybe Arthur. There are no Blank. rules. There are no rules in the draft draw. I push back on that. I feel like we we spent probably yeah. too much time on on Rankin Smith Sr. and Co. I thought yeah. we broke down uh, Arthur Blank's business history pretty well. I mean, I you know I didn't really feel like reading it was the whole book. I thought it was, it was comprehensive. I'm I'm yeah. very comfortable with it. But I did have some Atlanta fans reach out on on the refuge on our message board and say. There's a lot of happy people with Arthur Blank, I think was the, the moral of the story of like, you know, the guy, the guy is a competent owner was kind of where that, that was more of the feedback I got, like that maybe we were too hard on him or we were making fun of him. And my point is, he's easy to make fun of because he dresses like a cartoon character and he takes himself really seriously. That was kind of like my takeaways from, you know, spending hours looking up Arthur Blank content. I have a brief make up a. Uh, several people pointed out to me that during the blank discussion about his ranch in Montana, that I accidentally murdered Ted Turner. Yes, that's oh, tough. Ted Turner, <laughs> Ted Turner is very much alive. I, and I, uh, I must have so. missed you say that. Like, I totally missed yeah. that because I would have corrected you. I, I knew that Ted Turner was still alive. And and that's, you know, thank you well, to listeners to the, for, for, for yeah. letting us know that that slipped through, yes. through our audit. Yes. When I think <laughs> when we eventually do, you know, maybe we just sprinkle in some non-NFL owners along the way. I think Ted Turner is top of that list. I mean, absolute force of nature. Well, so is the, you know, the other guy, the cable cowboy, John Malone, uh, the Malone, Liberty media yeah. guy, Atlanta Braves owner. Like apparently that guy's like as cutthroat as they get. Yeah. So I think definitely we need to branch into some other sports. Um, so, so too. anyway, yeah, maybe PC, what, what, let's, we think we got to thank a partner. Yeah, thank thank a proud partner of ours, Holderness and Born. I'm currently wearing one of their new Sullivans. It's fall here in Jacks, guys. It is. It is. Thankfully, it's fall because you know I got all this great outerwear, and I don't get to use it until I go on the road. The Sullivan, the new Lawson hoodie, the Jackson hoodie, uh, the Ward sweater, the Bets, and then you know all these go over these these wonderful print polos that that they have, which. Uh, they're just coming into their own with the print polos. So, uh, Neil, what's your favorite? I've, I've got the Ward sweater right here with from our pro shop with no laying up script on it. It is Ward sweater season up here. Between the Sullivan, the, the cable knit stuff from H and B is is you know the, the best the stuff in our knit pro or shop. Diamond. Well, diamond knit. Uh, yeah, cable's the wrong word, but diamond knit is is what I'm all about. <laughs> this is Ward sweater season up here. Currently, I'm actually wearing a Columbia football. Uh, hoodie because I did a jersey swap with with uh, Mr. Peter Pilling, the athletic director. So sent him some NLE Alliance. stuff. Uh, hopefully he got some H and B, and he sent me you know some some Columbia gear, anemic anemic Columbia Lions football team up in Morningside Heights and Inwood this year. Just not good on offense. Sounds like we're pretty scrappy on defense. I know this isn't part of the ad read, but <laughs> that's that's where we're at. I believe uh, both John and Alex uh, went to business school at Yale. So Yale game coming not, up. Yale game in two weeks. There you Columbia have it. Fans. Start with this week and then Yale, which is uh, usually you can pencil in a three-point loss for the Lions anytime we're playing Yale. Yeah. KVV, what's your what's your favorite piece of H&B? You know, I just love the polos. Like, I, I think it's the perfect fit for a, a thick guy like me. Uh, just, you know, a little bit stretchy, but not too boxy. Uh, I, I was sporting those all summer. Uh, I have one of the the diamond uh, knit sweaters that uh, is actually the sweater that people were saying I look like Ken Bone in, uh, which I didn't <laughs> like. So I had to kind of had to kind of put it away. That was the color, not the sweater yeah. itself. 
I, I need a, I need another color to cover. I need a refresh on the color front. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, I love love this stuff. Love love the dudes met them uh, this year at the U.S. Open. Uh, so uh, very very happy to be a regular uh, wearer of H. Unlike Ken Bone, KVV is not undecided on 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 H and B. He's I'm, yes, he's voting H and B. Well, hey, they, you know, for all you thick boys out there, thicker boys, the fit loosens up as you get up to, towards large XL and on up, but still maintains a sharp look, uh, kind of like our friend Ken. Anyway, get in there. They got all sorts of good stuff. They got some limited edition stuff in there. We got a bunch of stuff in our pro shop. Go to hbgolf.com. That's hbgolf.com. Use code NLU15 for 15% off and uh, all sorts of goodies in there as you get stocked up for fall and and then the holidays like this is the stuff you want to wear to christmas dinner or thanksgiving dinner or your high school reunion you know people are going to be like man that guy looks sharp so guys big one today jimmy haslam oh frown's owner lot lot going on here a lot of family stuff uh fbi raid i believe they're 44 and 94 and 1 since since he bought the team obviously they've got massage boy up there all, all sorts of things flying around so i reached out to a friend on the refuge who's you know he he will remain nameless well connected uh he said oh boy i've been waiting for this one a truly iconic piece of shit who made his fortune <laughs> turning a blind eye to a southeastern drug trafficking ring at his gas stations on I-75 in exchange for kickbacks from the people moving it. Allegedly. Allegedly. And, allegedly. This, and, and yeah. this is about his dad, first of all. And and those uh, gas stations are pilot, correct? Pilot Flying J. Which yes. I will I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Before I found Bucky's, I was I was searching for pilots on the highway. You're not a loves guy? Uh no, I was more of a pilot guy. I felt like they ran a tighter ship. I, I'd also give a shout out right up up, up top. A tortoise sauce season three. Randy and I had to drive the RV back from San Francisco to LA, and we stopped. We spent the night at the uh, truck stop, the pilot truck stop in Salinas, uh, California, and uh, walked in. It's probably two a.m. because real strict RV laws in in Central California, uh, like where you can park it. All the RV parks were full, and uh, I just yeah I walked up to the counter and I said, "Hey, man, I know I'm not a truck, but the uh, the manager at the pilot was super cool. He was like, yeah, man, you go ahead and park it.'" in you know spot 37 or whatever rainy windy night randy i thought we were gonna you know get stabbed it was it was pretty spooky but i appreciate the hospitality so tc please continue salinas salinas real steinbeck Steinbeck. yes yeah it was, <laughs> felt very east of eden for sure <laughs> is that the garden is the garlic capital or the avocado capital uh, I'm not Great sure. Great question. Don't know the answer. I feel like I drove through there. I drove through there this this past year with Randy. I don't know. That's that's neither here nor there. We can update the folks as we go okay. along. Here. Where were we? Big Jim Haslam, the Big father okay. here. So, to continue from my friend, can't wait for this episode. Feel free to throw that cartel nugget out there. Allegedly, pretty open secret in Tennessee. Part of why his kid is untouchable politically. Uh, to clarify, everything I just said is about Jimmy's father, Big Jim, who started Pilot. Not about Jimmy. Jimmy is the Roman Roy of the Haslam family. Ooh, wow. Uh, 
Not Kendall, but Roman. Huh? Who signed Deshaun Watson for $230 million because he doesn't understand morality or consequences. Bill, on the other hand, is Kendall. The entire family needs to go to jail. <sighs> Bad hombres. <laughs> so Incredible. All right. Does that pique your interest? It does. Please take, let, where do we start, TC? Do you want that as a teaser, TC, or do you want to go right into the Haslam's? Do you want to, you know, say, save that for the end of the episode? Or do you want to just, because I know we have a, a much more milk toast at one for our number two owner situation. So. Uh, I say we lead with this one. Yeah, let's I think go. Okay. People are going to, let's do it. You know, we're, we're going to have all, we're doing the Packers on the back end. There's all sorts of Packers fans out there that are, that are, they will listen to anything Packers related. So, um, Let's so James Arthur Haslam 3.0. Uh, his father started flying J. I'm not sure if he's self-made or what, but pilot oil. Then he started the like kind of branched off, started pilot flying J. Jimmy, the son, came on board in 1976. At the time, they had a hundred convenience stores. Uh Pilot Thomas Logistics is one of their other companies now. He's basically grown it to uh, one of the largest or the 10 largest privately held companies in the U.S., 24,000 employees, all sorts of just it's they're fucking huge. I mean, it's it's uh, they have, you know, 70,000 parking spaces for trucks, 4,800 showers, 4,300 diesel lanes. They've got the logistics company. They've got they've gotten all sorts of CVC Capital Partners. They spun it off to them. There's there's all sorts of corporate rigmarole but jimmy was kind of came up in the company uh by 1980 he was named vice president of sales development operations and he um basically he was named president ceo by 96 uh so in 81 they they opened their first travel center and he kind of grew that side of things by the time he was named president chief executive officer they had 96 travel centers 50 convenience stores and total gallon gas sales had reached $1.2 billion. So um, Jimmy's backstory is uh, Jimmy went to the University of Tennessee. He was a Sigma Chi. He was the roommate of Bob Corker, the United States Senator from Tennessee. The po- politics will be a, a uh, pretty big element of the Haslam family here as we go along. So Jimmy is married to D. Haslam. Uh, Dee has a very interesting backstory. Uh, she's the daughter of Ross Bagwell, uh, much like our friend John Malone, the, the, uh, the cable cowboy. Ross Bagwell is a pioneer in cable TV and sold his production company to Scripps in 94. Everybody says Dee loves to paint. And I've heard a lot of people say she's actually delightful. So, you know, I'm sure she had to sign off on the massage boy uh, signing and all of that. They're real big on like, oh, they're co-owners, right? They yeah. keep like sort of pushing that narrative of like, we we own this together. We make all yes. the decisions together. So uh, D, I think with Jimmy, owns uh, River Media, R-I-V-R, uh, which produces such uh, shows as Whale Wars, Trading Spaces, <laughs> Escaping Polygamy, <laughs> Fat Guys in the Woods, Great American Heroes featuring Chase Adkins, Blog Cabin and Little People Big Conventions. So, oh, God, this sounds wow. like uh, you know they must be tight with with Zaslav over at Discovery. You exactly. know, that, it just sounds like just cable PLC, TV eating eaters. HGTV. Yeah. Yes, exactly. 
Neil, you should see if they want to sponsor a tour sauce season. You know, we could explore this. Put space. it on late at night. Yeah, yeah. Would you guys like to repurpose Just. our golf content? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm going a lot of different directions here because there's just so much going on. But they're big UT folks. So D and Jimmy, I think they've they've been married for a long time. They have three kids. They were married in 1976. So they have. Uh, let's get into Jimmy's brother, Bill. Because I think he he factors in as well. Bill is the current owner of the Nashville Predators. Uh, he just took on majority ownership. He was the governor of Tennessee for I think multiple terms, and he was the mayor of Knoxville prior to that. Um, he was yeah he was governor from 2011 to to, to 2019. He was mayor of Knoxville prior to that. Uh, he's the co-chair of KVV's boy, Tim Scott's presidential campaign. Uh, he also owns the Tennessee Smokies, the Cubs double A affiliate. So they like this family. They just, they want to own pro sports franchises. All right. Sports and politics. Yeah. Uh, so Jimmy, uh, prior to owning the Browns, he, he bought a minority ownership in the Steelers, which I think at some point when we do, the Rooney family. We need to dig in on like they seem to be kind of the training ground or the proving ground for, hey, we're gonna, you know, this is like the waiting room. We're gonna vet you over here with the Rooneys. The Rooneys probably get to top up their cash coffers. Like you're probably gonna buy and sell this, you know, for a loss, or the Rooneys are gonna collect some sort of of uh tariff. Mentoring here. fee. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh Jimmy said he was a lifelong uh, 1000% quote, a, a Steelers fan. Uh, this is prior to, to buying the, the Browns, which, you know, kind of arch rivals there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't think that sat all that well with a lot of Browns fans, but basically he bought the Browns in 2012. Who did he buy the Browns from? He bought the Browns from Randy Lerner, Randy Lerner. This was interesting. Al Lerner, Randy's dad, uh, Neil, big Columbia fan. Yes, there is a, the student student building, whatever you know, kind of like student campus buildings, the Learner Center. Columbia touches a lot of Michigan and Columbia it's, touch it's, a lot of. Uh, it's like the Rune Artledge Auditorium in the Learner Center. Rune Artledge was like the ABC Wild Wide World Sports guy. Okay, so yeah, Al Learner. Al was a Marine. Basically, took over MBNA, which you would be familiar with. Um, KVV, the bank, uh, and Town mm -hmm. and Country Trust uh, was a big apartment owner. He was friends with Art Modell. He actually old, held a 5% stake in the old Browns franchise. And allegedly, the deal to move the Browns was signed on Al Lerner's private jet. Wow. So somehow, I have no idea how, Al Lerner gets the rights to basically the expansion franchise for the Browns. Uh, I couldn't figure out like why, like kind of the backroom dealings that led to that, but they stopped talking after the, after that Modell bought out learner stake in the Ravens in 97 for $32 million, which was, I think 9% of the franchise. Al died in, in 2002 and James Dolan, actually James and Charles Dolan uh, were bidding on the Browns. Yeah. Uh, they got beat uh, out. Like they got beat out for the Redskins, then the Browns, yeah. and then yeah. the Jets. 
Al Lerner. This is the third yeah. team that we've discussed where the Dolans are trying to <laughs> weasel their way in. Which, God, the Dolans is an NFL ownership group. It, it sounds awesome. like the NFL owners are just like, guys, fuck off. Seriously. You, you got the Knicks. You got the Rangers. You got MSG. Now you got the Sphere out in LA. Just seriously fuck off, please. Which, the, to be fair, the Sphere looks sick. It does. It does. Um, you know, we, we do have to hand it to Jimmy. That the thing is, it looks pretty amazing out there. The Browns, they went for $530 million. And uh, yeah, so Al died in 2002. Randy held the team for about 10 years. They built the stadium. They didn't do a whole lot with him. They weren't very good. They weren't like, they didn't really have an identity. It was just kind of, you know, going through poor so, coaches, bad coaching decisions, all that stuff. So just so I'm clear though, and I think we covered this a little bit. So the Colts move middle of the night, like we talked about. And yeah. then Art Modell owned original Browns owner. He moved them he moved them to baltimore correct okay and then how long was how long were the browns with, or the was cleveland without a team it's like three years i think three years yeah it was like years. what 90 i think they came back in yeah 95 they moved uh and then they resumed operations in 99 so and they were not technically considered to be an expansion franchise even though they really? were they were restocked via an expansion draft yes because they took on like they they got to keep their their history their history right. their retired numbers their hall of famers the uniforms all the trademarks all that stuff and and was the move based on like they couldn't get a new stadium like so I guess two questions it, yeah. what's what what caused the move from Cleveland because that seems like a proud sports town and two who was public enemy number one Lerner or Art Modell oh no Art Modell Modell okay. okay. <laughs> Like not even close. Yeah. I mean, he would have been like murdered if he showed back up. <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah, just I think he me never went, I remember this vi like kind of vaguely. Yeah. He never went back to Cleveland, from what I understand. Yeah. Uh in before in this entire time. And they were celebrating when he died. Okay. Yeah. So basically there was inactivity with like like Cleveland Stadium, admittedly, was a shithole. It was demolished, and then Cleveland Brown Stadium was built on the same site. They kind of, you know, the the city, I'm sure they said hey we're not going to be held hostage they moved the team and then they said all right we're going to build the stadium anyway so uh i've been to the stadium it's pretty unremarkable if like it's it's fine it's right on the lake it's it feels like the browns right it's you know like, like that was the that was the first i went to a falcons game like ton of falcons games which are like going to a freaking corporate event at like a mausoleum and then uh, I've been to a bunch of Bengals games, but I'd never been to a Browns game. I went to a Browns game with a buddy and I mean, there's guys like fighting in the bathrooms and taking shit in the sinks. And like, it was, it was, <laughs> it was very different from my, from my Atlanta Georgia dome days. <laughs> Uh, this is the new stadium. I, I, you, you know, while you were talking, I realized I was thinking in my head, oh, I've never been to Cleveland. And I was like, oh wait, I have been to Cleveland. Like <laughs> that was how forgettable it was. Like uh, I remember walking past the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame talking to yeah. various uh people about baker mayfield so. yeah i very much enjoyed it though like great tailgate scene uh it was like it was like a it was a uh december game or january game it was cold as shit so well so all right so learner learner's son takes over yeah learner's son takes over kind of like you know whatever he's he's kind of a finance guy just you know holds the team for 10 years doesn't seem all that passionate about it and then ends up selling it you know makes four or five hundred million dollars off the top uh, you know on top of what his dad bought it for so 
you know, bought it for 500, 550, sold it for almost a billion. So Jimmy rides into town, says, Hey, you know, I'm not a Steelers fan. I'm a Browns fan now. Uh, we're going to, we're going to do things differently. This is a new dawn. People are saying Peyton Manning may come in and, and, uh, you know, work for the organization. And, and, you know, this is, this is part of this, this big plan, uh, to kind of rejuvenate the Browns into a big winner. What, what so, year was this? This was 2012. <laughs> Shortly after that, the whole, uh, pilot flying J scandal the fbi raids pilot flying j headquarters uh they're in knoxville um i think big uh big jim steps or jimmy steps down for a couple years he's back to being ceo now but he was president ceo at the time he steps down uh just you know not good but as far as the the um, see real quick for there yeah. any indication yeah. of what why the FBI decided to raid uh, the pilot Jays? Like, obviously, you, know, you hinted a little bit at it in the beginning there. Like, what was the uh, reasoning that the FBI was like, "Oh, we got to get involved in this shit"? Yeah. So, so going into that, it was a rebate scheme. It was is aimed at cheating trucking companies out of these rebates. So, trucking companies would basically pledge their allegiance to Loves or you know Flying J or I'm sure there's you know a bunch of other uh i'm gonna get roasted here for not remembering other uh you know truck centers yes but uh and then basically in return they would get uh they would get discounts that are calculated on the back end based on how much you're pumping and all that so a lot of these smaller trucking companies didn't have the the wherewithal or the infrastructure to track these rebates um so you know this Basically, all this flows up to corporate. Corporate then, um, you know, reduces the discount, sends them a convoluted invoice or a convoluted rebate check and says, hey, here's your rebate check, you know, but it could be for 14% instead of 18% effectively. Yeah, so, and and this is like a, a nationwide scheme as well. So it's, it's, you know, it's not just in Tennessee. It's all over. It's interstate commerce and all that. So uh u.s district court it was tried in u.s district court in knoxville you know but the fbi is kind of the ones doing the show on this this and this breaks like pretty like you know within a year or two after the haslam's bought um the uh team and it's kind of suspicious too where like haslam brought in this guy used to run pepsi to take over at pilot in 20 September, 2012, uh, he wanted to focus on the Browns and, uh, like six to 12 months later, Haslam decided to reassume his CEO role. This is, this is courtesy Grantland and he demoted Compton to strategic advisor. Uh, he said, Haslam said, quote, this is about me realizing my first love is running pilot flying J wanting to return to that job you know kind of uh you know people said hey maybe like new guy comes in realizes very quickly that this thing's a fucking mess doesn't want this on his hands haslam has to come in and clean it up then the fbi comes in so 10 pilot flying j employees pleaded guilty um there were guilt you know there were plea deals there were guilty verdicts all sorts of stuff but Nothing ever kind of rose up to 
Haslam, and he never really got punished by the league. Roger Goodell said, Jimmy Haslam is a man of great integrity. We're proud to have him as an owner in the NFL and think he's going to be a great owner for the Cleveland Browns. He's a man that I think everyone truly respects in the NFL, end quote. Yeah, so he never faced charges, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, they, they paid like a $100 million fine. And, um, and yeah, so as far as the actual team going through all this stuff, so Chud was his, Coach Chud was his first hire after uh, – so Pat Shermer was the the coach when when he bought the team. Probably one of the more uninspired head coaches in recent NFL memory. Pat Shermer, that's right. God, <laughs> what a terrible, terrible coach he was. Yeah, Heckert was the GM. He had Coach Chud in there. Uh, I think he. I think he. He thought about bringing Chip Kelly in. Ken Wisenhunt were the other finalists for the job, but. Coach Chud comes in. They bring in Michael Lombardi as well. They go four and twelve. Coach Chud gets fired after a year, um, and then they bring in Mike Pettine. Uh, <laughs> they fire Lombardi. Ray Farmer comes in as GM. Joe Banner was in the mix. He resigned, which Joe Banner just kind of Man. floats around yeah. in these NFL circles. Um, what else? Talk to Joe. Talk to Joe Banner last year when I did that. Yeah, uh, Howie story. He's one of big uh, Howie's mentors. This was this kind of leads us into the uh, the uh, Johnny Manziel draft, and they brought in Gilbert, the uh, cornerback. Uh, this is in the midst of all the Josh Gordon stuff. Josh Gordon oh, just can't stop getting suspended. Yeah, <laughs> which um, is such a generally poorly run franchise, like just over and over. I mean, like. You can think of a hundred different things that the Browns have fucked up in various eras. Like in the since the sort of rebirth of the Browns, they just keep stepping on rakes like every single year in some <laughs> it's way. Crazy. Um, yeah, there's just like there's so many different things, and also like they have legitimate talent. Like during this time, like they have a Hall of Famer at you know at tackle um, with uh, Joe Thomas. They got like they got some good building block players. <laughs> Like it was crazy in that in that Johnny Manziel thing. Like he didn't watch a single watch any film. A film did <laughs> just blew zero, my mind. Zero film. His words. That yeah. is God. What a shame. I mean, both awesome, but also just like what a waste, man. He made he made your major boy Shanny want to basically quit the Browns. He was such yeah. a disgrace. Ray Farmer <laughs> gets uh, he gets fined for texting the coaching staff during games. Was that wrong? Was that illegal? Was that wrong? <laughs> the offensive line coach gets arrested for domestic assault. Uh, they go seven and nine in 2014. You know, hey, maybe maybe they're turning the corner here. Then they go three and 13 in 2015. Whole regime gets fired. They bring in Sashi Brown and Paul D. Podesta and Hugh Jackson. Yes. <laughs> Forgot about the D. Podesta era. <laughs> God. <laughs> They go all in. They go all in on <laughs> analytics. <laughs> they bring in the data boys. So uh, you know, of course, that's a fucking disaster. Uh, Andrew Barry was on staff there as well. They go one in fifteen. Um, they do draft Miles Garrett, but uh, end up, end up firing everybody there. Then John Dorsey comes in, and they hire Freddie Kitchens as head coach. <laughs> God. God. Some, of these, like, it's, some of these names I've, I, it's like they just 
almost like light up a certain port part of my brain that doesn't get used a lot. Like, oh my <laughs> like god. god, I haven't heard that name. Have I ever told you five years? Have you ever told you guys my favorite Freddie Kitchens thing? Is that on the NFL Combine? You know, these all these coaches would, you know, they're staying out really late. They're drinking until like two, three a.m. at night, and they're getting up for seven a.m. sort of workouts and stuff. And Freddie Kitchens would like go to Starbucks and ask for his coffee in the morning to be like lukewarm served so that he could just down it straight. So he could just like a, a very efficiency move. So he didn't want to drink iced coffee, but just like really lukewarm coffee. So he could just No, no, I can't it have it iced. Just... That's going to give me a brain freeze. And it can't yeah, be hot. Exactly. It's got to be right in the middle. <laughs> the kitsch, baby. Um, yeah, like, like I feel like we could do a whole like oral history of like this decade of the Browns from – yeah, John Dorsey and Kitchens and just the media, like all this stuff. Um, but they come in, Baker Mayfield <laughs> gets drafted. Uh, they're playoff favorites at one point. Uh, they go six and ten, and then they hired Stefanski, which I still don't understand the Stefanski hire. Um, you know, just seems like an exceptionally mediocre head coach. So um that's kind of like, and, and then, yeah, they're like, like there's all this, I don't know, like it just seems like this Tennessee mafia, you know, they're big, they're big Tennessee volunteers people. Although Bill, his brother went to Emory, uh, he, he really wanted to teach and become a minister. Uh, but then he joined the family, the, the, the family business rose to president with Jimmy as CEO and then obviously owns the predators now. So, uh, question: yeah. Two questions. One, throughout this, his ownership is is Haslam an active owner? Very yeah. active. Very active. Extremely so he's, active. He's he's got. He seems like he's got a not a lot of patience with uh, with mediocrity. So he's he's quick to fire. Correct. And I, and I think you know they've like Berkshire Hathaway bought into Pilot in 2017. I think they acquired another like they they bought like 39 percent of it. They bought another 42 percent. I think this year. So. Uh, their stake, you know, they own a couple billion dollars worth of pilot. So he, I think he's back into like, hey, we are owning the Browns. He owns the Columbus Crew, or he co-owns the, the yeah Columbus Crew. Um, they won the MLS Cup in 2020, so uh, kind of saved them a little bit because like there was a guy trying to move the crew to Austin for a while there, the previous owner. So he saved the crew in Columbus, and then um, he's DJ's boy. Because he bought into the Milwaukee Bucks as well from uh, Mark Lazary. So he's he's in there with uh, Wes Edens and the gang. Does he uh, have anybody similar to like like uh, McKay down for the Falcons? Like, is there any – It seems what's interesting with, with you reading through this is it's not only that he's firing coaches, he's firing GMs. He's cleaning house like every two years. A lot of times you see like, no, I'm going to stick with my VP of football operations, but we're going to get rid of the coach, which is kind of what – Seems like Arthur Blank's done, but it seems like Haslam's just like, no, nope, whole new squad. And then, I mean, you got to think like looking back on that, it's really hard to create any kind of culture, which is why they keep, as KVV said, stepping on rakes. I mean, there's just, there's no continuity. Yeah. I mean, I think they've got Andrew Barry in there. He's kind of the, you know, main dude as far as football operations, GM. Uh, Jimmy and D are both like D's listed at the top as managing and principal partner alongside jimmy uh and then she's you know tries to do a lot in the community uh there's this guy jw johnson i'm not sure exactly what his 
what his role is. He's the executive vice president and partner. Part of the reason I think they they bought the Browns is because of the orange color. I think it's similar to... <laughs> That's so probably true. You know? God. Paul D. Podesta is still, still in there. Like He's still, he's still a part of the franchise. Yeah, he's been there since 2016. Uh, Neil, this is the guy that was, you know, came from, uh, he was, he was in baseball for, yeah, he was years. the, he was Jonah Hill's character in, <laughs> in, uh, Moneyball, right? Moneyball. Exactly. So he's still floating around there. And then, yeah, otherwise it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of closely held and, and they just, yeah, they just keep cycling through like personnel guys. And so, but Barry's been there since, you know, he was there. VP of player personnel from 2016 to 2018. And he's been their GMs or like GM football ops guy since 2020. So um, we'll see. I mean, he's really well thought of within like, it's a good roster too. Like that's the thing that like, it's, they're really banged up this year and you know, yeah, they signed like they may have whiffed on massage boy uh, there, but they've got, you know, they, they nailed the miles Garrett uh, thing. Their defense is awesome. Um you know, well, it they, seems like they, have, they like they, over the last they no, yeah, they have no qualms about bringing in low character guys. Yeah, Green Hunk, which, which probably comes from like the 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 data slant of like, well, no, it doesn't matter. This guy gets on base. I, I know he likes massages, but Podesta <laughs> says that he gets on base, so it's cool. Uh, yeah, it seems like their depth chart across, like especially on defense, this is very un uneducated take. It seems like they they have a, a, they've done a good job with, um almost like depth across the team, but they keep missing on like the, the, uh, the crown jewel, right? Like with Manziel and then with Baker Mayfield and, and now with Watson, it's like they can't seem to find like a quarterback basically, or, you know, those big important positions they keep whiffing on. There's so many funny details about that Manziel thing. Cause like Manziel was like texting their quarterback coach during the draft. Like you got to take me, I'm ready, whatever. And the quarterback coach like forwarded to Haslam and Haslam's like, Oh Yeah. Let's go draft that guy. And they remember they had Brian Hoyer at that time. And Hoyer was like furious that they did it. And so the Texans called them and like offered Hoyer like a second round pick for Hoyer. And then Haslam like killed the deal. It was like, no, no, no. Like we'll, we want to keep Brian Hoyer. The young man will teach Manziel. It was like he could have gotten a second round pick for Brian Hoyer and you axed it. It's just there's so many like my buddy Seth wrote that sort of big expose into the Browns. And like I, the, I, I want to read this one funny part. Uh, just about the the marketing executives wanted the employees to see how fans were engaging with the Browns on social media. So they projected the Browns feed onto a giant wall in the facility. It was like broadcasting talk radio over the entire building. And one day in particular, it was worse than that. One of the marketing staffers entered a search for hashtag DP for dog pound. The problem was the hashtag carried a few different meanings, one of which triggered an array of porn to be broadcast on the wall to the entire office to be seen for more than 20 minutes until an employee realized it and killed the feed. So the Browns were just broadcasting double penetration porn God. on the wall because they didn't know what they were doing. That's that's tough. Any any uh, with the Deshaun stuff, like it it it, it was it's bad on multiple levels. Bad because Deshaun's a bad guy, and then also kind of fucked the whole league over just with like the guaranteed money. And like, was there is there any comment from Haslam on that stuff? No, not really. I mean, just kind of like 
hey, we're we're trying to win. We're trying to do our thing. And like, yeah, I, like I imagine all the other owners are pissed. It must be, right? right? It's like a terrible precedent. You know, not that's not how the cartel's supposed to work, Jimmy. Yeah. Like, that's not what we do here. We're supposed to collude with each other. Is I, yeah, I, I imagine a, how it goes at the owners' meeting. Yeah, I think he's on the co- he's on the compensation committee. I think he's also on the the uh, the rules committee as well. So he's still like on you know some of these kind of highfalutin committees. We'll see there, but yeah, I mean, there's you know, it's like there's there's no way to like know what the full story is. Like even even on the uh, what do you call it uh, trucking stuff, it's like you know one of the guys at the company said. I mean, I called Jimmy and told him I got busted at Western Express, a trunk a trucking company that had discovered it was being defrauded. Oh, he knew it. Absolutely. I mean, Jimmy knew all along that I was cost plus in this guy. He knew it all along. Loved it. We were making $450,000 a month on it, on Western Express. Why, why wouldn't he love it? And this is all like secretly recorded, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Haslam's on tape saying, sounds like Stick's deal with Western. And then, you know, on this stand, guy says, hey, like, like I didn't do this or, or Haslam had no idea or whatever. So, and, and like, it's not just like fraud. It's like witness tampering, you know, uh, embezzle, like all sorts of just, just interstate like racketeering charges almost like it's, it's like organized crime stuff. I do know that when, when Seth published his big piece about the Browns and the Haslam's that they, they threw a big tantrum and, and basically ended like millions of dollars of advertising with ESPN as a result of it. Like they were, they signed, had signed like a four year deal. Uh, and they sort of, I think sports business journal reported that they pulled out of it, like just two years into it. Cause they were so, uh, angry that ESPN would dare question their competency step by step. D decided she's, she's no longer running the little people, people, big convention trailers on, uh, <laughs> as pre-rolls on the ESPN videos. <laughs> Yeah. Also, the uh, IRS was a party to all this stuff, too. Like, it wasn't oh. just the FBI. And on all these tapes, there were also, like, like wildly racist comments as well. So the whole scheme mm, was, right. was called uh, Manuel, which, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of code for manual, which is, like, how they calculated all these rebates. But it was also derogatory towards a lot of the Latino-owned smaller trucking companies that they were defrauding. Uh, all sorts of, you know, racist language and bombs, all so- sorts of stuff on, uh, on, on, on all these tapes and everything like that. So, you know, and then the NFL just kind of puts their hands up and says, Hey, like, you know, these, these are people of integrity and, and they're great owners. So, uh, again, I would just say like, they're like 44 and 94 over you know, since 2012, like in a decade of, of, of owning the team. Uh, it's just, you know, and it's just, it's swerving wildly from one thing to the other, to the other. Yeah. So, well, it's, they, don't, they never have a plan they can stick with. That's the big thing I think with the Browns is just always flailing about. It yeah. just sucks to hear like, like one sucks to hear all this pilot stuff. I'm glad I have Bucky's now. So that's, that's number one, but two, it's like, it sucks to hear like, like, Buffett. I think the Bucky. I think the Bucky's guy might be a really bad guy too. <laughs> All right. Well, don't, don't, allegedly, yeah, don't allegedly. meet your heroes. I guess more of the story, but uh, or don't meet the owners of the businesses you like. Uh, the two. It sucks to hear like Berkshire Hathaway is bought into it because that that just means it's like a wildly good business. Like despite this 
the scumminess, right? Because those guys, like, that's kind of their whole thing is, like, value investing long-term. Like, it must just be a cash machine despite, you know, scummy management. Just sucks that a, a guy like like that is able to just, like, fall upwards. Yeah, truly. It's, uh, it's, it's depressing. And it's just all sorts of family money. I guess he, you know, I guess the one respectable part is, like, he, he seems to be pretty competent when it comes to maybe not like operating legally, but like, you know, he did build this thing into a much larger corporation than what it was when his father handed it off to him. Um, but you know, who knows, like his brother's the governor, his brother, like there's all sorts of tentacles going everywhere. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I need to learn more about D D's kind of just floats in the shadows does a bunch of charity work and, and seems like she kind of, uh, you know, absolves him or, or, you know, kind of cleanses his reputation a little bit. I mean, I can't be worth like, I think it's worth overstating, like to take that big, a $240 million guaranteed swing on a scumbag like Deshaun Watson and, and having it <laughs> fucking be not only just bad morally and like rewarding a guy like that, number one, over rewarding him compared to like what he should be doing as a as a league owner and then the guy sucks so it's just yeah. like a bad decision all around it's like like he deserves god he deserve more criticism for that it just that pisses me off man it really does it fucking infuriating the sneaky interesting football take with deshaun watson is like was he ever actually really good or did he just fucking pile up a shit ton of stats in garbage time when the texans were like not very good. Like they had that one good year that they when they playoffs and they jumped out on the Chiefs. But like, was Deshaun Watson ever actually like a great quarterback worthy of you know a big guaranteed deal? Yeah, you know, but he it's, also it's, like he also had like Bill O'Brien calling the plays. So it's like it's not like they had like some schematic advantage, right? True. But they did have Hopkins in this like his yeah. uh, pr- absolute prime, like literally the best route runner than the league for the last 10 years so and i know like i guess okay so devil's advocate here like it's a quarterback league if you don't have a top 10 quarterback you cannot win in the nfl Mm -hmm. and so it's like okay maybe that's the justification for this like we gotta you know morality be damned we gotta we gotta take a guy you know that that's available but it's like they didn't even get a deal on it you know what I'm saying? Like you should be in my head. You're like, oh, well, this guy's damaged goods. And like, you're going to take a bunch of heat for it. Like, but then they go and overpay him guaranteed money. Like, what are we doing? This is, I just I don't understand it. And then he sucks. So it's like, I guess that's the silver lining for me. But anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. I just think that's worth noting that like they deserve a ton of heat for that. For sure. And it feels, like it's, just, should, it feels like it's just been like, everyone's just been like, all right, well, it is what it is now. And it's like, no, it should be called out. Like, often that like the guy's a dirtbag. i tell you what they should 100%. do. They should bring back the hood, man. When Kraft ships him off and says, Hey, you're, you're good here in new England. They should bring in Belichick full circle. That kind of would, would be a good storyline for sure. I think he, I think it's interesting to think about what Belichick's might next move might be. I could see him like coaching the Bears or like the Commanders as like a historic NFL franchise. I don't know that he going back to the Browns would <laughs> would interest him. I think he kind of 
He doesn't have as much uh, nearly. He doesn't have really the animosity at all towards the Browns for spite firing him that he does for the Jets. For like basically, he never even actually coached the Jets. Uh, so maybe. What, what do you guys think? Belichick's last year, yes or no? No, no, I don't think so. I think yes. I mean, if they if they don't win any more games, then I could basically see. I'm kind of with TC. You know, I think yes. I, it it seems. It looks like a historically last bad year in New season. England. Last year in New England. That's what I'm saying. They might be tanking though. They might just basically be like, "Yeah, yeah. we're we're, we're probably gonna just burn this whole thing down." So, <laughs> you know, we're, we're on, we'll see what whether we're on to 2024. <laughs> Guys, it's we'll so funny crowds. too. Like the Browns, like when they were after they fired Coach Chud, I think they, uh, I think they looked into Josh McDaniels, which like yeah. you would have been an outright disaster. They looked into Adam Gase. Like, that would have been hilarious. <laughs> like, they're just attracted to, like, all right, what's the new shiny object? Yes. You know? So Seems that way at, with the quarterback stuff, too. All right, TC, yeah. anything else? Nothing else. I would encourage people to – somehow I missed Seth's piece on the Browns. Oh. I would encourage people to go read that. I'm going to go read yeah. that after this. <laughs> uh, there was so many different tentacles and, like – yeah things to go down here and it was like 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 you could do an entire podcast just on brown's personnel moves and coaching and front office people for like a six-year stretch from the time they bought the team in 2012 to like 2018 basically so that's on me tc i should have sent you the seth piece oh, all good also uh, uh, guys i want to thank our second sponsor today and that is who is currently caffeinating me this morning our good friends at Stone Creek Coffee. Uh, and we have our own coffee. I know you guys have been drinking it, getting Randy into Great. it. Is, is yeah. this the block party? Him into, this is the block party. Uh, this was in our gift bags at the Summer Festival, Roost Club Championship. However, we've recently upgraded that coffee. We've upgraded, we've updated it with a new blend of micro lots that we're now calling Juice Patrol. All right. (laughs) It's a blend of a crispy new lot from Guatemala's. I'm going to pronounce this totally wrong in true trap 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 fashion. (laughs) Huey Huey Tenango or Huey Huey Tenango. Yeah, we'll we'll go with that region and a super fruity coffee from Honduras. The blend is engineered to be really juicy and is inspired by a subtle story involving the egregious badness that seems to be inextricably linked linked to Tron's favorite uncle. So uh, if you're looking for a coffee to get you warmed up for your fall rounds, check out Stone Creek Coffee and Juice Patrol. Go to stonecreekcoffee.com slash trap draw. Uh, you'll find all sorts of special NLU coffee products. We've got our, our mug there as well and some other recommendations from our good buddy Drew there at Stone Creek. So use code TRAPDRAW. That's one word, all caps. TRAPDRAW for 15% off and free shipping on your first two orders. Uh, I've been drinking the Cream City a bunch here lately too. It's awesome. I've been, it's perfect fall coffee. I might have to get with uh, Drew and talk about his iced coffee uh, technique because I've, I've just started doing the like let it steep for eight, nine hours. Uh, it's great. Uh, but I want to make sure I'm doing it right because I'm a year-round iced coffee guy. I'm that kind of psycho. I'm not quite Freddie Kitchens. I was going to uh, say we know. should do a Freddie. Cre- <laughs> we should do a Freddie Kitchens blend. Just Luke, this like, best served lukewarm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So thanks to our friends at Stone Creek, 
Again, stonecreekcoffee.com slash trap draw. It's like fucking good coffee. Like really good coffee. So thanks for their support. Well, from the sort of chaos of uh, one franchise to the stability of another. Sure. Uh, we, we've been getting a lot of discussion calls about like, hey, why don't you guys unpack the Packers uh, situation? The one true franchise in America uh, that isn't does not have an owner uh, that only answers to the people. Uh, Neil, I think we were both kind of curious as to like, how did that come about? Uh, and uh, certainly uh, it's, it's a, as unique of a sort of situation that exists in, in really in sports and all the world, like the, the kind of, I guess, random luck and like desperation that had to unfold for the Packers to survive uh, and still be in green Bay is pretty remarkable. And so we're not going to really talk much about um, the football side of it uh, that much here, because I think that side has been covered, but just like the history of like, how in the world did this, come to be have either of you been to green bay i'll ask that question uh, i have no i've not been to a game i'm trying to think if i was if i've driven through it but i haven't but um i would love to tc i yeah. have never uh i flew out of green bay on the way back from taurus sauce michigan okay. um dj dropped me off on his way back down to milwaukee but i know i have not uh i've never been to green bay proper or to lambeau field I had never been there until the Rogers piece that I wrote. And man, like truly does feel like it, there's an NFL team in what I would call like Billings, Montana, like just a hundred thousand people, uh, town, uh, you know, obviously there's big more in the larger incorporated area than that, but, uh, it's fascinating to roll up to Lambeau field and it's like in the middle of a neighborhood. It is just, uh, it feels very much like a college stadium. Like it could be, you know, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, or a place where there's houses like right across the street. What what is the what's the distance between Green Bay and Milwaukee? It's I think about two and a half hours by in car. Yeah. Uh, I know I did it. Uh, so TC, how's the know. airport? Uh it was fine. It was uh, trying to think back. It was like a mix of, you know, it was like you could tell they had capacity to have a bunch of flights come in on the same day but you know as far as like regular service there wasn't a whole lot it kind of reminded me of of uh like grand rapids a little bit mm. or you know bigger than like your normal regional airport but you know it was fine nothing to write home about well guys uh i don't know if you know much about the history of green bay but uh in 1850 uh kind of you know the the french uh, war is sort of ended and uh you know the settlers are coming in there was all of 1900 people who were living in green bay wisconsin uh at that time there was you know something like uh, about a million people living in new york uh so you can sort of imagine how insane it is that a town of uh you know 1900 people grew at the same sort of time as the as our biggest city in the country to have you know on same footing with an nfl team that would be competing for for championships. A lot of immigrants were coming into Green Bay uh sort of at this time. A lot of uh a lot of Catholics, a lot of Irish, uh a lot of, you know, Dutch, uh but uh namely a lot of Belgians too. A lot of Belgians sort of settled in this area. They had moved to Canada, you know, from uh and then moved down as as sort of it became kind of a port city. Um and so one particular family 
The Lambeau family uh, was, was Belgian immigrants. They were sort of a French-speaking Catholic family. They settled uh, in this area uh, as sort of it was very much a labor town. You know, not a lot of uh, you know professional uh, sort of professions in this in this era. Uh, hard life, as you can imagine, in Green Bay. Have you ever heard the frozen tundra? Of, uh, you know, the discussions on NFL films. A lot of speculation over the years that uh, the hard life is what produced great football players here that that uh you know the people of of green bay wisconsin they loved rough and tumble uh sport you know because they were a rough and tumble people long before uh you know we'll get to uh mr curly lambeau who's sort of an essential part of uh the packers history but curly lambeau's grandfather uh it was uh, sort of well known about town uh because he thought his wife uh, was having an affair, and so he walked up to her on the street corner with a revolver, and then shot her, and then shot himself right after killing himself and injuring her. But his wife Marie lived for another thirty years. Uh, that's a tough. That's a tough lady. That's uh, Wisconsin <laughs> bred right there. In eighteen ninety eight, it's like it's like uh, a Plaxico uh, Burris. Uh... Very much so. <laughs> Uh, in 1898, Earl Curly Lambeau was born. We'll get to him in a sec. But so the Fox River runs right through t- uh, the middle of town in Lambeau, excuse me, in, in Green Bay. And for a long time, the two sides of the town were essentially rivals. They hated each other. It was sort of a working class west side and then a more of a professional uh, people on the east side. And there was this huge rivalry between the east and west uh, high school. You know, it was like a big rivalry game every year. So the big, like the event of the year was the big sort of um, rivalry game. And if you went on the other side of the river during like this rivalry week, you were liable to get your ass whipped uh, because the people took this very seriously. And this rivalry is basically what this, the region's love of football was born out of. The West was always like near the working class side. They were always much kind of, they dominated the early parts of the rivalry until Curly Lambeau came along. He was a four-year starter for East High School. He's one of the first ever like football phenoms of this era. Uh, and so he helped lead the East side to a victory over the West side for the first time in eight years. He was like a big you know, town hero. Uh, and so Curly, he enrolled in the University of Wisconsin to play football, but he basically pulled a Tim Riggins. He just never showed up uh, <laughs> there. He's, you know, never, never even checked out pads. Never know. Nobody knows why. Uh, a lot of people think, though, that it's because freshmen weren't eligible to play for the Badgers. Uh, but they were eligible to play at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, and Curly showed up at Notre Dame and basically Asked, you know, he wanted a spot on the team, got a tryout, uh, and played as a freshman for Newt Rockney. Uh, so this is sort of where the the origins of, of football in America are obviously uh, forming under, you know, Notre Dame and, and young, strong Catholic boys. I never uh, when, realized there was a Notre Dame tie-in with, yeah, with, yeah. with the Packers. That makes it all the more insufferable. hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, so, uh, unfortunately, as back in the day, uh, if you got, you know, sick in that day, you were liable to die of anything, of like of what they called, you know, January or like just a common cold. Uh, and so Curly gets a tonsillitis uh, as spring semester and he almost dies. He has to spend eight days in the hospital and he's basically like, yep, I'm peace out. I'm going back to Green Bay. I don't want to be in school anymore. Uh, I'm going to go back to my my gal uh, back in uh, in Green Bay. And he goes back to work for the Indian Packing Company. Uh, Indian Packing Company was basically like a, you know, a, a place that made, uh, you know, 
packed meat in cans for uh, for the war effort, uh, and he he made like two hundred and fifty bucks uh, a month back then. He was a shipping clerk, uh, and so he really loved football. Everybody remembered him as sort of a local star, and he wanted to start up a football team. And he begged the owner of the the company's owner, uh, Frank Peck, for some money uh, for jerseys and the use of the company's athletic field, uh, and so uh, he. You know, the, the football, as you remember, is like pretty important. It's uh, it's the town has kind of loved it. And so at, at some point, nobody really knows like how or why he comes across this guy. But this guy named George Whitney Calhoun who was an old newspaper editor for the Green Bay Press Gazette. Uh, and George was like a it's like straight out of like newspaper central casting big cigar, loved to drink beer, loved to sort of, you know, hobnob. He was an editor. He wasn't like the editor of the paper, but he was a important editor. People think like, I'll tell you what, people think that the, the media is the enemy, but basically the Packers would not exist without the media uh, because Calhoun is basically becomes like the early manager of the Packers. He And he puts in the paper, like on the front page, uh, that there's, you know, the ending packing company is forming a football team. And these young men are, are to report for tryouts tomorrow. Like he just listed the names of the, of the strapping young men in the town who they needed on the football team. And it was sort of used to drum up interest. And Calhoun basically for like 30 years was the Packers like PR person while still working at the newspaper. And so he was, you know, drumming up interest and constantly covering the team and making it seem like an, a, a sort of an official. So deal. KVV, I saw, uh, I saw on that note, I, it sounded like uh, Calhoun was from the West side. So they were technically like they yes. were rivals. And so they almost like Correct. formed up to make like a town super team. Uh, yes. And I also saw that uh, the, the Indian packing company, uh, they gave him 500 bucks to buy uniforms and yes. equipment, which comes out to like $8,400. Yeah. 10 grand. No small amount. Yeah. I was that's, like, oh, that's, that's actually more than I that. thought they would get. But the, the, were they the, yellow and green from the start? Uh, hard to say TC because of all the black and white footage. I don't think that they, uh, I'm not sure that that was, uh, I didn't, I didn't get that one in my notes, uh, just because, uh, I'm not sure, uh, from the, from the YouTube footage or the, from the stuff in the, uh, the books that I read, but, uh, so they, they kind of meet, they have the first ever meeting of this team in the green Bay press gazette building. Uh, and they kind of name, you know, Curly as the, the sort of the team captain and the head coach, and Calhoun is the manager. Uh, and so then after these these guys show up, uh, one of my favorite details about the kind of the early Packers is that one of the guys that showed up and was like kind of an essential member of the team only had one arm, <laughs> Gus Rosen now. <laughs> he was a pretty decent player. He was like a fullback. He would catch passes out of the backfield, and he scored a bunch of touchdowns. But, uh, I can uh, speak like, from experience. Uh, Albany had a, a guy, a D-end, uh, with that only his arm – was like halfway down his forearm was cut off. I think he was born that way. All American. Mm -hmm. I think he had five sacks against Columbia my senior year. Uh, so, like dudes with one arm can can ball even in today's yeah. today's world. Kind of like Shaquem Griffin. There you go. Right. The Indian Packing Company was absorbed in 1921 by the Illinois-based Acme Packing Company. Uh, they had their some of their facilities were in Green Bay, so it was sort of um, controlled by an outside. Entity, uh, Neil is a slogan guy. You'll appreciate uh, that uh, their slogan was a meat market on your pantry shelf. Mm. Uh, and from Wisconsin country to you. Uh, 
So, uh, you know, these are the very early floundering days of professional football in this country. But in 1921, the American Professional uh, Football Association is formed. Uh, and they grant the Packers an official rights to a franchise um, in the name of the Acme Packing, Packing Company. So, um, but it turns out in 1921 that they they find out that Curly Lambeau was illegally using college players under wow. assumed names to uh, so TC, as you said, shady from a the bit start. of a JB uh, Holmes situation. <laughs> it's like it's like JB Holmes combined with like NIL. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So they kick him out of the league. All right. And, uh, and of course, you know, they, they apologize. They pay, I think, like a thousand dollar fine, which, uh, you know, an enormous amount of, as you'll see, Packers not exactly flush with cash. Uh, and in 1921, at the same meeting where they agreed to let the Packers come back into the league, the American Professional Football Association changes its name to the National Football League, which is where the National Football League is born. So you can see why the Packers, I think, are the third oldest franchise uh, in the NFL. You can see why they're sort of an essential part of uh, the history of the NFL. At the end of that season in 1921, the franchise was so in debt because of their because of the weather. They would go basically and play these games, but it would rain so much that fans just didn't want to come out. And so they had like some insurance for the rain, but but there was one instance where it rained like just right up to the right amount and then not quite enough for them to get the insurance payout. So they end up losing like shit tons of money on these games. And they're basically on the verge of folding. You know, this is the era of like the Pottsville Maroons and all these like tiny town NFL franchises all around the country. And teams were folding right, right and left. At one point, the NFL cleaves its teams from 22 to 12. And so you'll see kind of how the Packers survive that is almost kind of a little bit of a miracle. Uh, but then they go around town, uh, the, these, you know, Curly Lambeau and some of, you know, the, the people of the team and Calhoun, and they're, they're desperate uh, for some sort of funding. And so they ask this local businessman, John Turnbull, if he could somehow help kind of like, you know, raise some money. And they get the idea that they're going to organize a stock sale uh, so that some local businessmen can sort of be, you know, partial owners of the Packers. Uh, and so in 1923, uh, it be, this is sort of the birth of this. It becomes the first community-owned team in the NFL and all of pro sports. They issue a thousand shares at five dollars a piece, which is about eighty-five bucks uh, in today's dollars, and they raise five thousand uh, dollars. And back then, you also got season tickets with your stock. Historians like universally believe that, like, if any single owner, one person had sort of like if Calhoun had been able to just buy the franchise, that it would never have stayed in Green for Bay sure because of the financial incentives would have been far more significant to sort of move it outside. So they play in a baseball field for a couple of years. You know, Curly Lambeau was like one of the first like true scouting geniuses. He was like seeing places from all over the country. You know, he, he would scout like college players from like Dartmouth and Yale and, and Columbia and sign them to come sort of be part of the, the Packers. He'd pay, say, I'll pay a hundred dollars a game essentially. Uh, and that was kind of how he, he drew in a lot of talent. Um, they go, they, they move into a place called City Stadium, uh, which um, initially seats like 5,000 people. But the interest in the Packers was enough that they were able to sort of uh, grow to 25,000 seats. And one of the people who helped them sort of build an expansion onto that stadium was a local carpenter, Curly Lambeau's dad. So you can sort of see uh, all this stuff was was connected. Uh, one of my favorite details about the early Packers stuff is they didn't have any bathrooms at City Stadium. 
So at halftime, like thousands of fans would just go under the bleachers to just piss. Uh, so you can imagine what it smelled like. They had, they had to do the poosh bag thing too, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> God, that story about poosh in the bag. <laughs> Some most horrible trap drops. What did he there. call it? The glory bag? I believe so. That's some rock and roll shit. If those of you who haven't listened to the NFL <laughs> trap drop, please uh, you check that out at your own peril. All right. So the, the NFL, as I said, in in uh, the late uh, 20s, was started cutting down teams. But NFL president Joe Carr was big on keeping the Green Bay, uh, the Packers in Green Bay, uh, even though like there's a lot of people wanted them to move to Milwaukee. They actually killed a franchise in Milwaukee. And their thought was like, but the other NFL owners was like, oh, you should move that team to Milwaukee, it'd be much better. But Carr was like, no, like they're doing a good job in green Bay. So they should be able to keep them. And in 1929, they won the NFL championship. They just kicked crap out of everybody. Uh, a great detail about like Curly Lambeau backed in because they were so good, uh, especially on defense that they used to punt on first down because their punter was so good that they would gain field position. Like every time that they would punt, cause the other team was sort of inept and would have to punt back to them. And so like the field position would gain like 20, 30 yards just by punting. So it's like basically the opposite like, oh, of that coach down in Arkansas that yeah. is right. never punted. Maybe, maybe that's the analytics now, TC. It's just punt and on every first down. And you can, well, on the, your defense. On defense. the Milwaukee note, I read that up until yeah. I think very recently, like either 2015 or 2005, they, they, they used to play a game in Milwaukee, a game yes. or two, right? So it almost feels like there was a compromise there. Like, all right, well, it'll be kind of more of a regional team, but Green Bay is still home. Yes, and the the idea later becomes like the, a lot of business in Milwaukee wanted the Packers to survive merely so that they could like stall long enough for them to build like county stadiums. Then that they would be too lucrative for the Packers to to avoid, and then they would move them. Uh, so another great detail about part of the reason why the Packers uh, survive is because like the whole community obviously is like the story of this, but it kind of begins to revolve around the Packers. Like they didn't have a lot of money, so like. For road games, like fans were literally driving like players to road games, you know, in their like shitty cars. And they were like the ladies in town were making blankets for the players to have on the sidelines when it was cold. And the Catholic Church even changed its Sunday mass time so that fans could uh, could make sure and attend games. And the best part of it all is basically like during Prohibition, the entire town of Green Bay was like, nah, fuck that. They were they were basically like we are not going to like abide by the laws of the United States, and so they basically just opened like there were speakeasies all throughout town, and they were like you know mills where they would just like make you know massive amounts of beer. And when the the FBI was like going to come to town and do raids, the the like phone operators in Green Bay would tip off like the local sort of like liquor proprietors because you know the, back then the fbi you know back then you had the switch operators had to kind of like plug in those things and talk to be like oh the police tell the police we're coming blah blah and the, they were all kind of in on it. it was basically like no we're gonna make sure that this band so, so sounds like jimmy haslam sounds very much like jimmy haslam <laughs> <laughs> allegedly so teams from other cities love to come to green bay because it was always like a good time right you were going to be able to drink and like you know, you would this famous Packers player, Johnny Blood, loved to drink. And basically Curly was like, man, if you come here, like you can drink all you want because like prohibition just doesn't exist here. And Johnny was like, I'm in. Like, <laughs> So uh, Packers seem to be doing fairly well. But, you know, again, like small town, always sort of on the brink of, of financial peril. In 1931, his fan named Willard Bent 
was sitting in the stands and he got up to cheer during a game and he fell off the bleachers and he injured his back and he sued the team for $20,000. So in the trial, uh, and this is all according to Packers historians, it comes out that Willard was an, it was an alcoholic who was suffering from an advanced case of syphilis and he was known to fall frequently, but the jury didn't care about this and he's awarded $5,000 in damages. So back then in 1931, like $5,000 could basically like flatten you. The Packers had some insurance, but the insurance company was like, yo, the Great Depression started and uh sorry to say we ain't got it. <laughs> like we're broke. Morgan we and Morgan not- cleaning them out. <laughs> yes. So they were like, oh fuck, we're in total. So in 1933, the team has to go into receivership. You know, they're completely like, all right, well, you know, the we don't know what the future is going to be. Like someone could come in and start to take over this. So a local businessman uh named Lee Joannis he lends the team 6,000 bucks to help them survive. And if there's an unique trivia question, essentially during receivership, Lee Joannis was the only ever owner of the Packers. So if you ever want to win like a bar question, like that's a, a good thing. It's like because in this brief period, he technically sort of owned the team uh, as it sort of helped get it out of receivership. Uh, so the team is like, at this point, is like $15,000 in debt. Uh, and it's I think it's like 17 months that they're in receivership. So a group of local businessmen, Joannis kind of rallies, you know, some guys together and they they end up being known as the Hungry Five. Uh, they come they come up with a plan to save the Packers. Uh, and this guy, Gerald Clifford, who's an attorney for the team, he drafts articles of incorporation that the team would remain community owned and they would have their second stock sale in history. And they raise like $13,000, which was enough to sort of keep the team going for a little bit longer. A fun, unique detail. In 1935, the Green Bay Packers went looking for a center, and they found one in a guy named Gerald Ford. Uh, they offered Gerald Ford 110 bucks a game, uh, which, you know, $25,000 back then, uh, like for a year, essentially. That was equivalent of it today if he accepted the deal. But Ford declined the offer and another offer from the Detroit Lions and then went, made his way to Yale to study law and then to the Navy and, of course, the House of Representatives and finally to the White House. Uh, so the Packers history almost had center Gerald Ford, uh, which is a pretty darn good player at Michigan, if you recall. So Packers kind of like they're they're continuing to like be pretty darn good. Curly Lambeau is like one of the sort of innovators of football. He used to actually used to throw the ball like 30, 40 times a game back then. He was everyone else was kind of like grinding it out. But Curly was like one of the first kind of like offensive innovators, you know, uh, kind of a shanty of his day, TC, uh, pushing the envelope, you know, having success. Uh, again, the story of financial peril just continues to sort of surface. In 1950, their training facility burns down uh, because of faulty wiring. This time they have some insurance, but it's they're still kind of like teetering on the edge. And Lambeau, by this point in the 50s, He's, you know, he's only ever had three losing seasons in his entire Packers uh, life after 31 years as the head coach. But there's a lot of like kind of unrest in the town about like Curly wants to control the franchise. The franchise now has like a board of directors. He doesn't have like total control. He's frustrated about it. They signed him a new contract, but he's like, you know what? Screw this. I feel like I'm losing the power struggle. I'm leaving. And he goes and takes a job with the Chicago Cardinals. Uh, so he had won six NFL championships at that point uh, with the Packers, three before they had the playoffs. So it was back like the Premier League soccer where he just had the best league record. And then three after they instituted like the playoffs. So currently like a super essential part of the the early history of the NFL. Um, but the game had sort of passed him by because like, you know, who wants to go play in like tiny Green Bay? They don't have a ton of money to sign you. 
So it's not like there's any like salary cap in this day. So like the bigger cities have more money to sign various people. So the Packers kind of are like, all right, we got to again have like a third stock offering uh, because this is like the sentiment again is like if we don't raise money, they're going to move to Milwaukee or they're going to move like completely out of uh, you know, this is really like the most significant stock sale and drive. Uh, and they go out and instead of just local businessmen, they offer stock uh, to like the workers in like the paper mills and the guys at the bar and the people going to church and they just go all over town. And this is where like Green Bay earns its reputation as like a true blue collar team. Uh, and they, they thought that it was going to be like a statewide thing, right? That people from even all the way up from the upper peninsula were going to sort of be interested in, in signing. But you know what? It turns out that like 90% of the money that they raise is from people in Green Bay who are basically like scraping together every last kind of dollar. So th- this is where they become a true nonprofit in this era in 1950. They sell 4,700 shares for 25 bucks a piece. Uh, and the, the surviving shares that they, the original guys, they sort of split. Uh, and so they ensured that existing shareholders wouldn't be trampled in voting in the voting by the new shareholders. Uh, and over time, the, so the, the, the team's corporate lawyers call for the shareholders to elect a board of directors and in turn, the board of directors selects a seven-member executive committee to operate the franchise. Uh, so, Neil, as, as you sort of alluded to, like, Milwaukee is always kind of lurking. And so in 1957, the Packers take essentially what's the equivalent of a million dollars and they build uh, what eventually becomes Lambeau Field, a 32,000-seat 32, uh, stadium. Part of the bylaws say that all the money raised in these stock sales has to go back into the team. They cannot use it for salaries for the players. It can only be used it for like upgrades and various like um, facilities and stuff. And so this kind of helps, uh, you know, ground the team in the sense of like, you, you know, there cannot be like an uproar and a coup where you're like going to overthrow the president, whatever, because it's essentially like Congress, like you're, you're voting to elect a board of directors, and then the board of directors votes to sort of have a, a CEO and, and a person who runs the franchise. I think the, the um, board of directors is like 40 to 50 people, I think. And then the mm-hmm. executive committee is eight. And the only yes. person on the executive committee, I guess you could kind of, that's more like a traditional board. The only one that's paid is the president and CEO. Correct. Things are still kind of like bad uh, in the 50s. Like they're not a very good team. Again, people are wondering, even though they have this unique thing, are they going to be able to survive? In 1959, the team takes a swing and hires New York Giants offensive coordinator named Vincent Thomas Lombardi to be their coach and general manager. His kind of declaration was, I'm only going to take this job if I have total control. Uh, I'm the one in charge around here. Wants to buy the groceries. Exactly. (laughs) He's going to cook a meal. He wants to buy the groceries. Sells situation. uh, Not only because of uh, he liked to have total control, but also because he was a very religious man. His nickname becomes the Pope around town. Uh, and his first year, they go one and ten the year before Lombardi is hired. And then the next year, they go seven and five in his first season. And the the local fans were so appreciative that they bought up every ticket uh, for the next year. And every Packers game has been sold out since 1959, wow. which is quite. I, I think other than Augusta, so, I think it's still season tickets. I think I read the list is 88,000 people on the waiting, on the waiting list, list for, for Packers yeah. season tickets. Crazy. Uh, so up until 1997, uh, there were only 1,940 shareholders. 
which is remarkable uh, to think about. Um, so no so one are the buy... shares like transferable? Okay. So no, we'll get yeah, to that. I'm going like, to give you a full cool. breakdown on that, on the, the modern structure, yeah. but we'll get through the history first. Yeah. So they really need to make some upgrades to Lambeau Field. Uh, in 1997, they have a stock sale, uh, and they open it up to basically as much as they were hoping maybe to even get like 200,000 people, but like 106,000 shareholders buy in at $200 a share rages raises about 25 million. They have another stock sale in 2011, uh, right after they win the Super Bowl for the first time in like 30, 40 years, whatever, uh, at $250. This time they raised about 140 million. Again, they, all the money basically has to be put back towards the stadium, uh, they add about 7,000 seats, new video boards, all that stuff. Later, they have one more stock sale. It's the most recent one in 2021. Sell 176,000 shares at 300 apiece, raise about $65 million. Per the rules, and I'm going to kind of pass this off to Neil here, no one can buy more than 200 shares. Uh, and as, as Neil will sort of explain, the shares do not get you. What the shares get you is an invitation to the owner's shareholders meeting, a certificate and voting rights, and that is it. Uh, no dividends, no share price appreciation, no spoils if the team is sold, no securities, no law protection, no tickets to Lambo, no charitable tax deduction, no merchandise discounts, no financial reports, and no option to transfer ownership to anyone but as a family member as a, or a gift. Uh, there, well, one other benefit, you can buy uh, exclusive ownership merch. So almost okay. like TC, members some of the, only logo. Some of the, yeah, members only logo. Exactly. <laughs> members only jacket. It's yeah. the moral of the story. So yes, KVV, you want me to pick it up there? Yeah, I think that's a good, just one other thing is that is you can't dump the stock because the team is the only place that can and buy it And they will it back. buy it back they will at buy the same back. value. So if you bought it. No, they will buy it back for 2.5 cents 2. a share. 2.5, thank you. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes. You know, it sounds like they're not really a fan of the working man. You know, the shareholders. Well, no. So, so I was, it's a fascinating thing, right? So we've established it's the only community owned nonprofit professional sports organization. Don't get that twisted though. Nonprofit does not mean it's charity. They do have a charitable impact. The, the beauty of this Shout though, a big J. Uh, they reported a $10 million charitable impact in 2022. It's the only NFL team or, and might be the only professional sports franchise similar to the PJ tour that has to publish their balance sheet. So you can dig into like all their financials. Uh, and, the, and in reading about this, similar to how the PGA Tour is a nonprofit, it, it has some similarities, but I would actually liken it more to like, what's why would you do this? What, what What's the value? I, I almost feel like it's more like a college endowment, like the way people like, you know, Columbia's giving day is coming up. They're going to start blowing me up for money, right? Just so they can put it in the $13 billion endowment. It's like, that's basically what happens here. Any profits get rolled into a corporate reserve fund, which sits at $474 million right now in 2022. So as KVV said, like any money raised from these stock sales, they are expressly forbidden to raise cash for players or administrative salaries and must devote the funds to tangible assets as increasing seating capacity, infrastructure, pro shop, corporate meeting rooms, touring facilities, practice facilities, which is what they've done. As of uh, this year, over $200 million have been invested in the past two years. This is from the 2022 um, like kind of shareholder letter, bringing the Packers' total investment in the stadium to $600 million without any public tax dollars since the 2003 redevelopment, where I think they, they did use some, some public funds to really uh, renovate Lambeau back in 2003. And that was uh, 
one of um, the, the current CEO and president is this guy, Mark Murphy. So mm-hmm. Mark Murphy played uh, football at Colgate up in upstate New York, a proud Patriot League uh, school. My sister, sister went to Colgate. Shout out to, to the, the Raiders. So. Uh, and good football program. Raiders. They always have a good good team. Then yeah. he, he was an undrafted safety, made the Pro Bowl, I think, at least once or t- maybe twice for the Redskins. So had a good NFL career. Uh, I think he was then a member of the NFL Players Association as a as a executive director. I don't think he was ahead of it, but I think he was like pretty high up. And then he went back and was the AD at Colgate for 11 years, from 92 until 2003. And then uh, the Packers hired him as the president and CEO. And so in doing this research, I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense because this is almost structured like a like a college. Like, why do we donate to our, our alma mater? It's because like we're proud that we went there and we want it to be a sustaining thing that sticks around and doesn't, you know, doesn't disappear and and pass it on to the next generation, which is kind of an interesting concept for a pro sports organization. But it makes sense when you think about the history of the the stock sales were very much local people being like, no, we go to these games every, you know, every year we want the team to stay here. Um, and and they the original articles of uh incorporation for the Green Bay Football Corporation, uh back in the I think it was what'd you say, nineteen twenty nine that those were twenty nine, yeah. I believe so. Might have been thirty one, but uh they had a ton of like foresight on this stuff, which which was pretty interesting. <laughs> um what did I have here? Oh yeah. So in those original in- articles of incorporation, uh it specified that the franchise uh, if it was sold, if the members voted to sell the franchise, any post expense money would have gone to the Sullivan Wallen post of the American Legion to build a proper <laughs> soldier's memorial. This stipulation yeah. was included to ensure that they could never be any financial inducement for shareholders to move the club from Green Bay. At the November 1997 annual meeting, shareholders voted to change the beneficiary from Sullivan Wallen Post to the Green Bay Packers Foundation, which makes donations to many charities and institutions throughout Wisconsin. And that's where the $10 million charitable impact went in 2022. I think you should have kept it as a Sullivan I know, but it's sweet. It basically just said like, no, we're these business, these hungry five got together and said, no, we're going to make sure that there's no incentive for people, basically for them to go to Milwaukee. And then what the stock sale is going to do is it's basically there, I think in the early days to make sure that like, all right, we're basically just going to like collectivize this ownership so that we can put the money back into like making like making it better for fans to attend games. Couple other things I had here. So the stock sale, even though it's referred to as common stock and corporate offering documents, a share of Packers stock does not share the same traditional rights associated with common or preferred stock. Doesn't include any equity, no dividends, cannot be traded. KBV you mentioned no securities law protection and it it brings no <laughs> season ticket uh, privileges. So there's a waiting list of 88,000 people. So basically all you can do is sell it back to the team or transfer it to your kids or potentially like somebody that's in your family. And yeah, you do get members only merch though, which is, which is sweet. Is there any governance associated with it? Like, you know, Mark Murphy, like if he's doing a shitty job, what's the. So you can, you can vote to basically like appoint new members to the board of directors. Like there's, they have an annual shareholders meeting uh, and like something like, I think last year, like 9,000 people attended. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the Murphy gives a talk and they sort of, 
you know, point out what they're, you get to walk around the stadium and it's like going to Disneyland kind of situation for a lot of these people. And they're, some of them are crying, tears in their eyes, big, strong men uh, about being associated with the Packers. But yeah, they, every like, so often you'll see like a little headline of like, you know, uh, Packers shareholders vote to appoint, you know, three new members of the so, uh, board of directors, usually like business people, like finance people. They, they were actually smart about this too, because there's, there seems to be, when they started to open these stock sales up to more of a general public, there's almost a layer in there to prevent like mob rule. So basically the, the shareholders vote on the, on the board, which is like that 50 member um, or 45 member, member board of directors. And then they basically implement the, um, the governor or the seven member executive committee, which is, it consists of a president, vice president, treasurer, secretary, and three members at large. Uh, and only the president is compensated. So that's almost the, the executive committee is, is a lot of honorary. Uh, it's a lot of business folks from Wisconsin that are on that executive committee currently. Uh, well, I think the executive committee needs to turn up the heat on your boy, Brian Gutekunst. <laughs> well, but it's, in, it's interesting though, because the Packers as over the course of the last, I mean, I don't I, When was the last time the Packers were, were bad? You know, like outright awful. Maybe the year that, Rogers broke his collarbone. Did they? I mean, I don't know if they were even awful then. They were. That's just like extenuating. Kinda, yeah, like, but like, sure. they've transitioned from, like, they brought it. Like Lombardi, very successful. I don't know much about the '80s, but then Holmgren comes in in the early '90s, yep. right? And then it's Reggie yeah. White, Ron Wolf, huge part of that. Ron Wolf's like one of the great GMs of all time. Yeah, and, and you've got you just have this way. continuity of like different phases of the organization they just they they have like a year or two of transition and then they're they're off and run they're up and running again where it's all it's always a competitive franchise like it's never doesn't look like totally the, like the bears or anything right and i think the um so it seems like they do a good job of preventing that like haslam situation nope we're cleaning the house we're, we're starting all over again like there there seems to be a lot of patience and you know the uh Current CEO Mark Murphy's been doing it now for 20 years, so it, it seems like they're, you know, they, they have they have the continuity factor. Uh, another important thing here: Green Bay is the only team with this form of ownership structure in the NFL, obviously, which does not comply with current league rules stipulating a maximum of 32 owners per team, with one owner owning a minimum of a 30% stake. Um, so the Packers Corporation was grandfathered in when the NFL's current ownership policy was established in the 80s. Uh, as a publicly held nonprofit, the Packers are also the only American Major League Sports franchise to release its financial balance sheet every year. So let's let's get into that for a second. Hell yeah! Because this is sort of a window into NFL. Yes. Yes. Exactly. You know this, dri- this drives the other owners crazy, right? Because they could really claim losses if if the Packers didn't have to actually show how large their revenues are. So uh, this is the 2022 balance sheet, $68.6 million operating profit. This was down 12% from 2021, $77 million. And this is from the shareholder letter and from the Green Bay Packers like website, basically the announcement of it, uh, or overview like post about it. Uh, total revenue increased 5% to $610 million. Most of that comes from the league rights deals. So kind of automatic up with the TV stuff. Um, Local revenue only jumped 2% to $235 million. Uh, and it's cited in this article that playing a game in London um, is cited as a cause for slower local revenue growth. So not having you know one less game at Lambeau kind of cost them on, on the kind of team local revenue. Total expenses. So what I gather, yeah. Neil, just whatever I gather from that is like 
every NFL team is basically like their revenues are something like seven, eight hundred million dollars a year. So from the no, not profits, from the actual balance sheet in the it's it's at the end of the twenty two um like basically shareholders report. It says in twenty nineteen revenue was four hundred and seventy eight million, twenty twenty five hundred and seven million, twenty twenty one three three hundred and seventy one million, and then in twenty twenty two five hundred and seventy eight million. And then expenses uh, in 2022, we're 501 million. So that's where you get to that operating profit uh, of 77.3 million is what it says here in. So when the when the Bengals were sort of like claiming poverty all those years, couldn't you know didn't want to pay guys all the way up to the top of the salary cap, they were still racking up. Not only the valuation of the team was going up, you know, probably a hundred million a year. But they were profiting 30, 40, 50, 60 million dollars just from the media rights deals. So yeah, the, the balance sheet I was just mentioning was the 2021. So so the 2022 sure. one was down 12% from 2021's 77 million dollar operating profit. Uh, yes. and then total expenses in 2022 rose eight percent to five hundred and forty-one million, a forty percent or a forty million dollar increase mostly accounted for through the usual jump in player salary cap, new coaching contracts, and the club's share of a one-time league legal settlement. I'm not really sure what that legal settlement was. That would be the uh, L.A. That would be the Stan no, Kroenke. Is that, is that Big Stan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God, that's Due to the city of St. Louis. Um, yeah. good, good spotting, too. So this is interesting, and this goes back to the college endowment thing. The analogy I made earlier, the biggest change was reflected in, in net income, which fell from 61.6 million to 35.6 million, mostly due to Wall Street's bear market in 2022, producing a $20.5 million loss in the team's investment fund. That said, the corporate reserve fund still sits at a healthy 474 million. So basically, like all these colleges do, they just put these endowments to work and they just, you know, usually make a ton of money just by. By sitting the there. only thing I'm thinking, so I think it's the LA thing. The only thing I I can think otherwise would be like the concussion, yeah, settlement that. that they endowed the you know that big fund for retired sure. players and everything. So I would bet it's the the Cronky thing though. Yeah, um, I'm seeing if I've got what? anything else. The the I guess the difference with this in a college, which is kind of funny, is it's it's like a college endowment except. They don't solicit any donations, or they only do it when they do these stock sales. So it'd be like Columbia say, "No, no, your money's no good here." Like, you know, like we don't we don't want it. Which how nice would that, that would be? Sick, right? If you want to pay us, yeah. If you want to I pay mean, us, we'll incredible. open it up. Maybe every ten years. Um, but, yeah. but again, I guess it's it's a you know, there's revenue. They probably feel differently if there wasn't a hundreds of millions of dollars flowing in annually from league rights deals and just the business of the NFL. Um, yeah. But I think that's. That's really what it comes down to is like people are just proud to be owners of the team. It's supporting something that, that they're passionate about. Like there's really you, you read through this stuff and you're like, why would somebody want to own the Packers? Like there's no financial benefit to it. It's like, no, just because it's like it's cool and I'm a fan. So which is it's kind of and I get to hang it on my wall. Yeah. Oh, and the funny, funny fact here is. So in the last uh, stock sale, it was, I think, 200, 250 bucks. That certificate is not included. You have to pay a $35 handling fee if you want the certificate for your wall. So that's See, not, I that doesn't this. even come included. They're just that's nickel weird. and diming the common man, the working class, um, the blue collar, you know? I hate it. That's great. 
I don't know, man. Uh, after yeah. after hearing about Haslam and all the other owners we talk about, it, this is <laughs> it makes you feel good. You know, I'm like that. You know what? That's sweet. Like what a what a dumb, stupid, but fun thing. It's truly a it's just a community team. And any of this money that you pay us, we're we're either going to put it in a fund for a rainy day. Or we're gonna make the stadium better. Really, that's all we can do with it. Like legally, we can't, you know, we can't use it to we're gonna use all the money that comes in from the NFL revenue to fund the team and pay players and all that stuff. It's super interesting that like the the actual NFL bylaws would prohibit someone from let's say, let's say Bob Kraft when he passes away and in his will he wanted to to create a trust or create a community, you know, basically bequeath the team because even like the Gail Benson thing from new Orleans a few weeks ago was like, no, like, like she wants to sell the team off and then use the proceeds for charity. There's no, like it would be against NFL bylaws to basically set up a team in the Packers image now, if you wanted to, hey, the, the Patriots are a community-run resource or the Jags here or something like that, you know. Which is it, it, an interesting yeah. thought. That, that is interesting, TC. It's like clearly this is a model franchise in the NFL. Like they – it's it's continuity. It's it's had championship success. They, they seem to like – other than almost like player-driven drama – it's it's doesn't really seem like the organization steps in it that much. Like, I, can you think of any scandals? Am I missing anything there? Mark Chamura, things of that nature. <laughs> yeah, got it. No, but no, not really. You I know, mean, so like, very, yeah, you're no, right. Yeah, it's like, like no front office scandal. I think I saw Murphy was uh, he got involved in the Northwestern lawsuit for some reason <laughs> uh, with with Pat Fitzgerald. But I don't, other than that, I don't know uh, any of like front office uh, stuff. So I yeah I don't know if I other than just maybe it's too complicated to to reenact this or if it would be too hard at this point to do it but yeah it's yeah. almost kind of a bummer that that it's not an option for NFL ownership that that right cities or towns couldn't take over the team and make it kind of community run mm-hmm. Yeah would be I mean honestly if teams couldn't hold their like cities or their regions hostage every time they wanted to upgrade their stadium if it was sort of a voluntary buy-in yes or no that it'd be a much healthier relationship between pro sports and their communities right so so and then just back to the income statement for a second there was this one is 2022 versus 2021 there was a massive loss in local revenue covid but it looks like national was 347 million from national and local was 231 million total revenue 579 so, and then player costs, expenses, player costs, 280 million, team, 55 million, sales, marketing, and fan engagement, 67 million, facilities, 27 million, general and administrative, 70 million. Total expenses, $501 million. So they paid for all the increase or all the additions to Lambo cash out of pocket. They didn't finance it. Not, not, they have not had any public involvement in Lambo. But even just just privately financed, like they didn't fi- they didn't take out a big loan. Doesn't look like it. I mean, this this might be not all the details, right? It's it's a document I found yeah. on the internet, but uh, it, it does seem like it. It truly is like, no, we got to raise some. We hey guys, we gotta we need to upgrade the the video boards at Lambo. 
It, it, I, yeah. it does say in the shareholder letter, they have a big stake in the development, the title town development, which is like all the stuff around Lambo, similar to how yeah. all the other owners are doing the same thing around their stadiums. So I, I, I think some of the money goes into funding that with, you know, probably private developers. It's so funny to go there and like, you see people like mowing their lawns, like right across the street from the, you know, from Lambeau field. Like, it's just such a, this surreal stadium that you've heard all about your life. And then there's like literally people like having, it's a Wrigley kind of situation, except for in a city that's, you know, a tiny, you know, fraction of the size. And the owner's not a soulless ghoul who's putting all that too. No, it's (laughs) infuriating too, because you do look at this. It's like, oh yeah. You know, if you just tell, the people that, you know, yeah, we need to raise money to, I, I wonder what would happen if they needed to like rebuild Lambo, Right. I get, but I guess part of this is just like, no, because we own it as a community, we're just going to keep up with the renovations. So it doesn't lead to the stadium falling into disrepair. Like we heard with what happened with the Patriot stadium, you know, or the Georgia dome. It's like where these owners are like, no, we're going to start from scratch. And that's where they need this big capital infusion from public money. But it almost just seems like over the years, they've just upgraded Lambeau on an ongoing basis. And it's led to the stadium being, you know, from what you hear, I've never been there, but it sounds like it's an awesome stadium. Well, and it's like the, you know, they, they just need to stay solvent. They need to stay cash flow positive, but not, you know, like, and, and a lot of that, like, you know, a lot of the profit would be driven from corporate boxes and this and that, but A, there's not a big corporate base there and be like be like there's not there's not a profit need it's it's a and maybe that's some of it too it just simplifies the operation of like running the team it's like no we basically we don't have to all this noise of corporate partnerships i'm sure there's some of those but like we don't even have to really worry about those we just have to pay for our facilities and we just have to like put a winning team if we win games we'll get more during these stock sales and we'll get a, a bigger share of the national money I'm sure too that every like local corporation in Wisconsin is friggin' dying to be connected yeah. to the Packers in some yeah. way. And so they're almost like probably turning away some of those kind of things where it's just like, okay, well, this bank wants to get involved with us. Do we want this to be the official bank of the Packers? Like, you know, so I I'm doubt kind of surprised there's not more like European soccer teams. Aren't there some in the lower the lower model. leagues? Is that maybe I'm? I think so, but but like up. you know, some of like like this would feel like very good for some of yeah. these, you know, especially Premier League clubs and all that, where it's like you know, there's there's kind of it's run by a trust or it's run by community members. I guess the thought exercise leader. is: what if the team sucked? Like what if what if Vince Lombardi didn't come along, right? And people were like, oh, this is a, this franchise stinks. Like the community doesn't want to go to the games because they're not putting a good product out there. It all kind of stems from that. Like they almost have no choice but to be good. Like maybe not now, it's but true. like back in the '60s, '70s, yeah. '80s, like that. You, you got to think that if they had a really bad team, maybe it does change the. You know, maybe but also maybe some of that's loyalty. They have higher loyalty to begin with. Like there is a, you know, as a shareholder, as a, like it's a, fa- it's the very fabric community. I mean, it's so unique, right? It's, it's. Yeah. And I guess there's still, at the end of the day, the key is there's no financial incentive for any shareholder to sell the team, period. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, why, you know, even if they sucked, like, no, nah, I don't want them to move. What if they get good again? Like, like, no, it's still my team. So it's just like a good, 
it's a, a perfect case study of like aligning incentives and like what that leads to. Yeah, man. Well, what a what an enjoyable uh, dichotomy between uh, <laughs> the Haslam's and the community of Green Bay. I think uh, that it's said. A, it's a good, <laughs> that said, I will I will give and you know a lot of people are probably gonna get on us for not getting into Brown's original history, but I think we yeah, do that when we talk about Bashadi and the sure. Ravens franchise because technically that you know I know that the history and everything stayed there, but Paul Brown and all that also like there's there's like it would take us two hours to get through Brown's history. Just for the sure. the like Modell moved to Baltimore would be, I mean shit. There's a whole thirty for thirty just on that. Yeah. I think I like to think of our owners thing as how do you understand the current ownership structure? Exactly. And so with the Packers, we got to go back to, exactly. you know, like the dawn of time. Right. But with the Browns, you know, it's a whole different kind of franchise, whether they have the same uniforms or not. So exactly. Um, guys, good stuff. This was, this was fantastic. We will, we will be back in the, in the coming weeks and months with uh, episode five. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to keep surprising you on the NFL front. We also might start sprinkling in some owners from different sports as well. So it's, you know, that's the nice thing about the trap draw. There's no rules. No rules. I want to give a shout out to uh, just some research things. David Moranis, uh, you know, the famous book, When Pride Still Mattered, uh, and sort of written a, a bunch about the Packers. And there's a documentary that he's kind of involved in. Then Mark Murphy actually executive produced uh, where they talk a lot of, uh, it's on YouTube, uh, talk a lot about some of the early history of the Packers is where it got a lot of this inf information as well. So. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who